everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McCurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And you can buy merch at store.twoguysdarktowercane.com. In this episode, we'll cover The Dead Zone, chapters 13 through 16. Let's start the show. Greg Stilson reappears and shows his true colors while interacting with a young man. Johnny's powers continue to cause problems in his life and draw unwanted attention. Johnny and Sarah reunite. Law enforcement asks Johnny to get involved in the Castle Rock Strangler case. I like your euphemism of reunite. Yes. They do not reunite. They make a love. (laughs) That's right. And I would say this is an amazingly well-written scene. And I think that this is like a healthy, natural consummation of the relationship that was derailed by Johnny's coma. I say that it's a well-written scene. I don't know how, how, how strenuously I will defend how healthy of a thing that this is, but let's get into that in a minute. But this is a well-written scene because a good writer like King can fit a great sex scene like this and include things that allude to the real love and the tenderness that these characters feel for one another within the context of a horror story. Mm. Whereas a not-so-good writer might be writing a love story and try to fit a horror scene, or just do the same thing that King did, but do it very poorly. And King makes it really, really work well. It's just yet another example of how much talent he really has, even though he's often relegated to a genre writer. I will say before we get into the other parts of this scene, King is not known for his good sex scenes either, by no, any, by any no. stretch of the imagination. They often come off as very corny or somebody trying too hard to make it sexy when it is in fact not in the way that King writes. Like, I don't think his... You think he was successful accidentally here? Not accidentally. I think this is a book that is early enough in his career that he doesn't have the stylistic quirks that King gets known for later on. Hmm. Exclamation points, parentheses, short paragraphs, interjections. Too many hyphens. Yeah, they can ruin a sex scene, I would would argue. And to be fair, like, of this early books, there's not really a whole lot of opportunities for sex scenes, are there? Carrie, maybe there was one, but it's a teenager, so that doesn't work so well. Um, The Shining... They allude to it, but by the time the story gets off and running, there's no sex scenes yeah. that are healthy in any stretch of the imagination. Salem's Lot, it's like a, a writer with a bad past palling around with a priest, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, there's yeah. not a lot of romance in that story. But this book thus far has really been set up as this love story gone wrong mm-hmm. from the beginning. That It's a tragic love story, if you will. Yeah, it starts off like Romeo and Juliet, but ends in tragedy. <laughs> but but seriously, I so I do think that there's a lot going for King already because he's created these two interesting, well-rounded characters that this is a believable scene. Yeah. And because he has laid all that groundwork and because he's a good writer, he's able to create a scene that's going to work well and not come off as forced or corny or inappropriate or any of those types of things. So I will agree with you that it is very well written. Yeah. And 
we, the audience, know as much as the characters in this moment that this is a a one-time thing. This is an encapsulated moment in their lives. So in some ways, it makes it all the more tragic, but it also makes it all the more precious and important. And I think that feeds into how successful King is in, in this. It's not like this is the beginning of a relationship. This is kind of like the end of a relationship, but in the most loving way possible. Yep. Now, having said all that, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm usually not a prude when it comes to this kind of stuff, but there's all sorts of things wrong, I think, with what is happening here. In Sarah's mind, they've been apart for almost five years now, right? The four and a half years that Johnny was in a coma, and then however many months it's been since he's gotten out of the coma, done his surgery, et cetera. So it's over five years, right? Mm -hmm. They both realize that they are committing adultery. Well, I guess she's committing adultery and he's cuckolding her or cuckolding Walt by setting up this, oh, why don't we get, she says, why I'll be in tower nearby. Why don't we get together? Oh, sure. My dad will be out of the house, but if you want to come over, be feel free. And she just happens to show up early. So like they know what they're doing is if you were to put a label on it wrong, they know that they're sort of skirting the rules of what a marriage should be and what a relationship should be. Added to that, the, I don't know, not great parenting by Sarah here. It's okay. I'll bring my son along and we'll just put him in a crib on the porch while we go off to the hayloft. I don't know. Sean, that's just how people did things in the 70s. The coyotes and, and the uh, the wind... Whatever you know, it, it, it's I, I can if see you him. survive that gauntlet, then you can be an adult. <laughs> Otherwise, it wasn't meant to be. And then the sort of unhealthy teasing of Johnny, like in his mind, it has only been a few months since they last saw each other. He hasn't mm-hmm. lived his life outside of hospitals. Like in his mind, they haven't been gone that part. And for her to, hey, let's go about and have sex. I think that could set the wrong idea in his mind. Now, to be fair, he does realize that this is probably the goodbye fuck that he's getting mm-hmm. and that he's not going to expect anymore. And, but, but still, I think that I don't know if it's the most healthy way to end a relationship here. No, I don't think that's, I don't think the goodbye fuck is a good way to end a relationship. <laughs> but I stand by my initial comment because this is a really special circumstance. It's not like they were dating for a bunch of years and then they broke up and now they're just having one last fling after, you know, one of them got married and whatever. It, th- this is, one of them was in a coma for five years and they're still in love with each other and they never actually consummated their relationship. Yep. And I think that they both felt, and I tend to agree, and I think King agrees, which is why he wrote the scene the way he did, that they needed to get it out of their system. They needed to do this one time so that they could move past it, move past the fact that it hadn't happened. And then they could maybe begin healing, maybe begin finding the next person for Johnny and settling into the life that Sarah has made for herself. I don't know if that would work if I were Johnny Mm. and and to bring my father into it like Sarah does, like, oh, look, here's the grandson you're not going to have and have the kid there. And the father obviously knows what Johnny has done. And even when Sarah says to Johnny, like, oh, Walt's a good guy. And I never would have found a good guy like Walt if it wasn't for you. Thanks a lot. I'm happy in my marriage. Bye-bye. It's a little rough Mm -hmm. for Johnny, I think, in particular. And then, you know, King sort of 
puts the dagger in at the end of this chapter when they consummate the marriage and says, Johnny didn't see Sarah Hazlett again for three years. So, yep. Goodbye. Rough. Rough stuff. Yep. At least we know that he will see her again, right? Ah, yeah, I guess so. There is that. So Three years later. Three years later. Um, I will say that of the things that are happening in this section of the book, as rough as this was, at least this was sort of pleasant for the people involved. The next section is not so great. Let's talk about the Castle Rock Strangler, Jay. Ooh, yes. Quite the name that he's been given there, right? Yeah. The Castle Rock Strangler. We read four chapters for this go-around. Those first three were pretty short, and then all of chapter 16 is this almost a short story on the Castle Rock Strangler. Mm-hmm. We've got a little hints in earlier sections about the killings. We've seen it even from the, the Strangler's perspective in a couple cases, and it's been sort of this thread that's been in the book, but here it comes to a head um, when there's a couple of killings and Sheriff Bannerman realizes he's not having any success in solving this case and needs to bring Johnny in. Let's get into it. What's going on with the Castle Rock Strangler? Well, uh, one interesting thing about it is that uh, Johnny and the Castle Rock Strangler had something in common. They both had very domineering mothers. Mm. However, their mothers were very different people because Johnny's mom raised a good son. The other mother raised... (laughs) The Castle Rock Strangler. (laughs) And we know quite a lot of why that happened. The Castle Rock Strangler is definitely the result of, not entirely, but certainly in large part, due to psychological and physical abuse Mm -hmm. his entire life. So his attitude towards other people, especially women, and how that intersects with sex is very twisted and very unhealthy. And that's why he does what he does. King paints a pretty clear picture for us. I don't know how accurate that is in terms of like what we understand of the psychology of serial killers and abuse, but that's how it's written in this story. Yep. But it's interesting that, you know, these two characters who are so different, Johnny and the and the killer, are still products of this domineering style of of parent. And uh, both men are doing really what their mother wanted them to do. We find out when Johnny touches Frank Dodd's mom's arm that she knew about the killings that he was doing and was covering for him, mm-hmm. or, or or at least didn't care. Like she didn't have any empathy or sympathy for for the victims. She defended her son at all costs, and Johnny's mom defended him at all costs as well. She's the one who, even when Johnny's father was like, you know, he might be a vegetable for the rest of his life, or he's never going to come out of his coma. The mother was always like, yeah, 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 he will. He'll be fine. He's got good things ahead of him. And even when Johnny came out of the coma, I know what he's here for, what he's meant to do. And so these mothers are defending their sons at all costs for good or bad. In Johnny's case, for good, right? Because he thinks when he gets to the end of this section that the promise that he made to his mother, you were given powers for a reason. And and these powers are going to help someday. He feels like maybe this was it, that I stopped this Castle Rock Strangler from from killing people more. Um and so I fulfilled that promise to my mother. Now, hopefully that's out of my system, that she's told me what to do. Mm-hmm. I fulfilled the promise, and now I can go and live my life. Right. Good luck with that, Jenny. Yeah. It turns <laughs> out, as I'm looking at the book, we're only about halfway through. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's also funny that you said that this was practically a short story about the Castle Rock Strangler. This one chapter was longer than most of King's short stories. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe a novella. <laughs> yeah. This is a long chapter. Yeah. 
I thought that it was pretty crafty of King in how we are very quickly informed through Johnny's magic powers who the killer is. And it turns out that it's Frank Dodd, who is one of the deputy sheriffs of Castle Rock. It's one of the cops in town. And in the normal course of things, this could have gone in a, a very like long drawn out process, right? Dodd gets arrested. He goes to trial. They need to prove that he did what he did with evidence that was not a psychic touching a bench, <laughs> right? Maybe he walks on this, you know, there, there might not be a, a solid case, but King cleaned up Dodd's arrest by making a mess. Yep. And that mess is Dodd's blood sprayed all over the room where he cut his own throat with a razor. I thought that was a fascinating choice by King. He really just nipped it right in the bud by having Dodd hang a confession note around his own neck and then cutting that neck wide open. Yep. It's like, okay, <laughs> I admit it. It was me. And I'm also dead now. So you don't even need to arrest me or try me or convict me. It's all done. Nice neepo. Yes. And that brings up a good point, because the Castle Rock Strangler is introduced pretty early in the novel mm -hmm. as sort of one of these threads. I think early on we said there, it looks like there's three threads here, right? There's the Johnny story, there's Greg Stilson's story, and there's the Castle Rock Strangler story. And it seems to come to an abrupt halt here. Mm -hmm. And I doubt we're going to, you know, as you said, it's not like the rest of the book is going to be wrapping things up with a with a trial and oh, whatever happened to that Castle Rock Strangler? And is he going to be haunting Johnny for the rest of the story? Like it seems to be done here. And so we're moving on. So if this is not the antagonist we thought it was for Johnny and Johnny seemed to think it was the antagonist that he was going to have, um, that sort of leaves Stilson maybe yeah, as our primary antagonist who, as I said, in the introduction sort of reveals his true colors very early on in this, in his uh, discussion with a young boy who's wearing a, Foul, foul t-shirt. <laughs> Indeed. How dare he wear such a t-shirt? Um, I think you were hinting at this a moment ago that Johnny very reluctantly helps with this investigation, but it's not really a hero moment. It's not heroic mm. because he's not going around solving crimes and reuniting lost people and doing all this stuff. He just wants to be a regular person and live his life. And I don't think that that's necessarily a bad thing. The, the reluctant hero is a, a, a trope. Right. But he doesn't want to be involved, but he ultimately becomes involved. And even though he's successful and helps to solve the crime and end these string of murders, which is all good, mm -hmm. Johnny himself suffers immensely for his contribution to this because he had finally faded from the limelight. He had even been called a charlatan by the inside view. So it's like, all right. We've put the matter to rest. Nobody's sending me their trinkets. I can live a normal life. This is all good. And now he's right back in the limelight because he solved a string of murders. Yep. And all these, uh, wasn't even good intentions, but th this, this good act is repaid tenfold in a terrible life for Johnny. He's never going to escape this now. No. As a result of it, he directly loses his job. There's this letter at the end of the chapter from his good friend who had gotten him the job back at the high school he taught at and said, mm -hmm. hey, I know you're a good teacher, but the school board is just not interested in, in this at all. So I'm going to have to let you go. And that was really Johnny's only hope for leading a decent life, right? He owes a lot of money. He's living with his dad in the woods. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have a girl anymore. Like, all right, well, at least I could teach. And it's something I'm good at. And everyone says what a good teacher Johnny was. 
but he loses that as a direct result of the so-called good thing that he's done here. Yeah. He didn't even like punch a student out, you know? <laughs> no. I know. At least then he could have gotten a job as a caretaker in a hotel somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how well that turns out. Uh, so I think that this is the other thing that's a primary part of this section of the book is the horror of Johnny's power. We've talked a little bit about this before, but this continues this theme of people just shunning Johnny. Even people who know him and like him, they just don't want to be near him or touch him or get too close to him because they're afraid of him. Johnny remembers how his physical therapist never touched him again after he foresaw the fire happening in her house. Um, He's he like loses... Rogue in the X-Men. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just like Rogue. <laughs> Just like Rogue. Um, he loses his job and he, he doesn't have this normal life anymore. Like I said, he's trapped with his father in, in this house in the woods. Yeah. As you said a moment ago, he, he lost his job. He has no normal life. And something that we've touched on before is that time has become Johnny's enemy. Mm. Time is something that we are all up against, right? We, we have a finite amount. We only live once, etc. But he's actually lost five years. And every day that passes, he feels like he's playing catch up. And it's a catch up that he'll never fully accomplish. He'll, he'll never get back to where he was because he can't go back to that time that he lost. No matter how many newspapers he reads, no matter how many books, no matter what he does to get caught up with info and important current events and things like that, he's just a man outside of time. And there's this great line that, for him, time had been crudely folded, stapled, and mutilated. Mm. Such a great use of imagery there by King to just picture... You see in so many science fiction movies and TV shows where somebody explains how a black hole works or a wormhole works or something, and they take a piece of paper and they fold it in half and they poke a pencil through it. <laughs> well, that's what happened to Johnny. But after they poked the pencil through it, they crumpled it up and they stapled it and smushed it. And that's how he feels when it comes to time. Yep. That's a big price that he has paid in addition to all the other suffering he's, he's felt for this ability to see in the future or sense what's going on when he has physical contact with a person or an object. Yeah, sometimes it's the future events and sometimes it's something current happening. Like he's not wealthy by any means. He's got hospital bills, his father's on a fixed income, but they decide to go out to eat one day to a restaurant, mm -hmm. even though, you know, it's probably pushing their budget. And he's in a cloakroom and just happens to touch somebody's jacket and immediately something sees something horrible. And he spends the whole dinner looking around the restaurant trying to figure out, oh my God, who is that? Whose coat I touched? Yeah. And it just ruins the meal. He loses his appetite. So like even when he's not trying to do anything it's a drain on him and i think it's a physical drain we see this bannerman says oh my god look at this guy looks like he's gonna die and he yeah, it's like rogue something. in the x-men it is it's just like rogue <laughs> it turns out <laughs> that somebody plagiarized somebody here and i don't know who it is but i, I think our next episode is going to be on wolverine so um the other thing is as I just sort of mentioned this, there's this continuous foreshadowing of Johnny's death mm. in some of these lines and what Bannerman says, like he looks like he's going to die at any point now. He's pale. Um, I don't think it's a spoiler. Like there's enough people saying like, he looks like he's going to die. Like it's either foreshadowing or it's not, but people are saying he doesn't look well. And he's a man who has cheated death pretty <laughs> big time, right? Yes. Just like Rogue. <laughs> in the X-Men. <laughs> Speaking of Rogue and the X-Men, 
There are a lot of really interesting and fun connections in this section of the book. Why don't we talk about a few of those? Go for it. All right. Uh, the first one is the mention of the Alamogusalem. Mm. Our dedicated longtime listeners, they'll remember that this came up in our bonus episode of Uncle Otto's Truck. And the fact that he used this word Alamogusalem in Uncle Otto's Truck and here, it's just a cool little connection. Yeah, this one is fun, too. You had mentioned Inside View Magazine, the tabloid that at first is trying to get Johnny to join its staff as a, as a writer, but then when Johnny turns it down, discredits him. The reporter from Inside View Magazine is a man named Richard Dees, who you will remember as the main character in the story, The Night Flyer, hunting for vampires. Oh, that's right. Now, for those of you who are patrons, you would have caught all these connections because you had listened to our bonus episodes. For those of you who are not patrons, who knows what other connections you may find? Join us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. There's another connection in a line, feeling like he, that is Johnny, could jump right over the roof of the world and land lightly on two feet. And roof of the world was the name of the place where in Dr. Sleep, Danny had to uh, have the final confrontation at the Roof of the World sign. That's right. And that's not the only Shining connection. At one point, a little song began to run maddeningly through his aching head. Little more than a jingle, really. A Sunday school song from his early childhood. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, 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 let it shine. Wow. Direct reference to The Shining here? Right after The Roof of the World? It seems like it. Yeah. And I asked the question in a previous episode, does Johnny have a form of The Shining? And I guess the answer to that certainly can be yes. King is very vague about what is The Shining. Anybody with psychic powers, sure, call it The Shining. Yep. But this double connection to The Shining and Dr. Sleep, I think we could say that he's got a form of The Shine. I think so. Now, would you think that powers, like if you were to touch someone and gain their powers, would you call that a part of The Shining? Like if I were Rogue, for instance. From the X-Men? <laughs> From the X-Men. <laughs> uh, yes, definitely. You definitely have The Shining, especially if you touch somebody and took their Shining and then you mm. became somebody who had The Shining. Yeah. I do think that Johnny would be much better off if he wore long gloves all the time. And spoke with a strange southern accent. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Like Rogue from the X-Men. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Or like Gambit from the X-Men. Also speaks with a southern accent. Yeah, he's got the Cajun accent. Cajun. Hey, Cher. Ah, really le beau. <laughs> I'm in love with Rogue from the X-Men. <laughs> uh, Any other connections, Jay? Yeah, there were two more I'll call out. One is that Johnny says, I've got a shitter of a headache. And the word shitter used this way just reminded me of Christine because yes. in Christine, Roland LeBay refers to all of the terrible people in the world who he doesn't like as shitters. And I thought that was a pretty unique pejorative term for, you know, just your run of the mill asshole. <laughs> Fair enough. It's one that I really love. It's it's such a great <laughs> word. Uh, just a shitter. <laughs> uh, and the other one is that when Johnny was accidentally touching various coats in that coat room, one of those 
was a man's denim jacket. Mm. Who do I know that wears denim jackets all the time? Is it Flag? Oh, yeah. I was going to say Rogue from the X-Men, but Flag is much better. <laughs> Johnny does not mention a smiley face button, but he doesn't mention any of the details except as a denim jacket. Very nice. Well, all those connections, I wonder if there are any Dark Tower connections, or some might call them thinnies. I've got a couple, but why don't you start us off? So when, when Johnny solves the murder case of the Castle Rock Strangler, the New York Times picks it up and publishes an article about it on December 19th, 1975. Whoa. Well, did you know that Sarah's friend, Stephanie, when uh, Sarah's visiting and staying with her, and that's ultimately what gets her, gives her the opportunity to visit Johnny? Yes. She shares Stephanie's phone number. And that number is 814-6219. And that ends in 19. 19. See what you did there. Yeah. Both you and I, I think, noticed that Bannerman is trying to defend his deputy, Frank Dodd, and says, Frank would have had to have started this crazy shit when he was just 19. What? Another 19. And it turns out that that's not much of a defense because, in fact, Frank Dodd did start this crazy shit when he was 19 and that he committed the first murders before he was a cop in anticipation of becoming a cop where he could then cover up for himself and be seen as a trusted member of the community. So basically, he started his murder spree when he was 19. Yes. Ah, here's a real uh, mind blower for you. All right. Castle Rock Strangler, not counting the spaces, <laughs> has 19 letters. Whoa, that's some deep detective work you did there. Oh, yeah. I got a real mind for this stuff, just yeah. like Johnny does. Wow. That's a good one. Wow. <laughs> All right. Well, we want to take this time to thank our patrons for supporting the show. Our patrons get exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. You can learn more by visiting patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. And we have a recent apprentice patron, Leanne K. So thank you, Leanne. Thanks for joining us, Leanne. We welcome you to our content. Sean, is it time for some fun stuff? I think so. I mean, we've been having so much fun already, but <laughs> let, let's have some more fun. Yeah, so this section starts off with Greg Stilson really laying into a young man who is wearing an obscene t-shirt, and I thought that this shirt went hard. If you're familiar with the Twitter account, t-shirts that go hard, this is definitely one. It's a red t-shirt, and when Stilson opens it up, the legend on it was clear. Baby, let's fuck. <laughs> I think that's an awesome t-shirt. Yes, but not one that you can wear around uh, New Hampshire towns in the summer, I guess, without causing some dismay in the mid-70s. Yeah, I don't think that shirt would fly even today. <laughs> this shirt is just flat inappropriate, but that doesn't mean that I don't love it. Yeah, I had for a long time sitting in the bottom of my drawer a t-shirt that said New York fucking city. You know how many times I wore that shirt? Maybe once or twice, and always to bed. <laughs> Never out in public. <laughs> New York fucking city, huh? That's awesome. Hey, Jay, what fun stuff do you have? Got a few things. I'll start with this one. Batterman is trying to get Johnny to eat something. He orders him some chili from the diner, and uh, I, I was really craving chili after this scene, but <laughs> Batterman says to Johnny, go to it. And <laughs> he says, man, I love good chili. 
My ulcer hollers bloody hell about it. Fuck you, ulcer, I say, down the hatch. <laughs> and I love how Bannerman has this whole, like, conversation with his ulcer about chili. Yep. It's so much fun. I dig it. So I wasn't sure if this is fun stuff or not, Jay. <laughs> question mark. Question mark, question mark, question mark. Um, I think this is in, in regards to the discussion about who might run for Congress from New Hampshire in upcoming elections. And somebody says, but the people didn't elect buffoons to Washington. Well, hardly ever. Ouch. And, um, you know, it might have been hardly ever in the uh, 70s. Looking around today, I just sort of shrug and say, yeah, buffoons, man, buffoons. It's a whole house of buffoonery, <laughs> if you will. Yes. How about you clear our palate with some real fun stuff, Jay? I will conclude my fun stuff with when Johnny and Sarah are finally having their their uh, loving moment in the hayloft. <laughs> King gives us this line, time spinning out in the sweet smell of hay, the rough textured blanket, the sound of the old barn creaking gently like a ship in the October wind, mild white light coming in through the roof chinks, catching notes of chaff in a half a hundred pencil thin sunbeams. First of all, beautiful. Second of all, Looks like Johnny's getting laid. <laughs> some might say that this is the life. That's right. I think it's time for some other worlds than these. Just a reminder, in honor of the Dead Zone, all of our other worlds than these, while we're discussing the Dead Zone, will be special Christopher Walken other worlds than these. <laughs> what have you got for us, Jay? I wanted to shout out Christopher Walken's amazing performance in the 1988 film Biloxi Blues. Ah, yes. It's a really special film. He plays a drill sergeant. It's kind of a coming-of-age story. It's a comedy it's an adaptation of a Neil Simon play, and it's just a lot of fun. Walken plays a character who is simultaneously working every comedic muscle that he has, and that's saying a lot, but he's also taking it very seriously. This is a role that he does not phone in, and it has some really serious dramatic moments, mm. especially with his character. So if you haven't seen Biloxi Blues, and you in any way, shape, or form are a fan of Christopher Walken, I highly recommend it. Very good. I think I saw Biloxi Blues back in like 1988 or 1990. I haven't seen it since, so I should go back and check it out. My other worlds in these with Christopher Walken is the recent TV show Severance found on Apple TV. Spoilers. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I wasn't supposed to say it was on Apple TV. Is that the spoiler? I'm <laughs> yes. very confused. <laughs> yes, don't, don't spoil people... where you can stream the show. <laughs> Severance is a very odd show in which workers at a mysterious company are able to separate their home and work life through very dramatic means. And there's a bunch of quirky characters, including Christopher Walken. Are you saying that Christopher Walken plays a quirky character? Who would have thunk it, right? I'm only about 50% sure that Walken knows Actually what, type of show, <laughs> what type of show he's in. <laughs> And what's going on in this show? It was hard enough for me to grok what was happening in this show. I'm pretty sure that he's just reading what's in the script and going with it. That said, he he's reading the cue card behind camera one. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'll talk about that in a future other worlds in these. But <laughs> he's fantastic in it. He's very, very good in it. Of course. 
He's awesome. But it's a very weird show. I don't want to spoil anything, but it was one of the better shows I saw last year. And um, I'm looking forward to season two whenever that comes out. There's going to be a season two? Spoilers. Yes. This show continues. I'm sorry to spoil everything in Severance on Apple TV, starring Adam Scott. Spoilers. Wait, is it Adam Scott? Is that his name? From Parks and Rec. Spoilers. I haven't seen Parks and Rec. <laughs> starring Rogue from the X-Men. <laughs> a teehee, a teehee, teehee. That's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. Check out our merch at store.twoguystothedarktowercame.com. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we cover The Dead Zone, chapter 17 through 23. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. We're both swell lookers. <laughs> I'm just proud of you for considering yourself a looker. It's the right amount of self-confidence to have. I'm a swell looker, <laughs> swell Sean. Looker, sorry. <laughs> <laughs>